not believe it. It's my favorite thing and it's going away. But we plan to end on a bang. We planned it this way. Pastor Joe Foch will be here Wednesday. Josh McDowell the next Wednesday. If you haven't made it out, a lot of you made a promise to me. This is your church. This is the biggest evangelistic outreach we do. There's going to be scores of baptisms in the next two weeks. You need to see lives change. You need to invite people. Okay? Uh, we are all in this together. So uh, make sure you come out those two nights. It's supposed to be great weather this week. And then uh, finally, we're running a trip to Sight and Sound. This is our 60-plus group, uh, our seniors. And um, we're going to the premier theater in the country in Sight and Sound to see Samson. And a motor coach will take you there. We'll leave right from here. Uh, probably hit Shady Maple or one of those places on the way back. And uh, me and Lori Optenaker are going because we love seniors. And we really want to see Samson. So uh, we're going to sneak along that trip. Tickets are in the bookstore. And um, there's only a few left, they inform me, so make sure you get out there. Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We're actually going to finish Colossians uh, today, which means we move into Thessalonians. I'm going to do something different. Next two weeks, I'm going to talk about the rapture of the church. Very important. It's the very next thing on God's calendar. Some of you like, I didn't even know God had a calendar. Well, I'll show you his, his day planner next week. Um, the rapture of the church being maligned. Uh, on the internet, uh, people don't believe it. Uh, you need to hear these series of messages. I'll take you through Thessalonians, but we will look at the rapture for the next two weeks. So um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for a great day, Lord. The energy of the first service, the fellowship uh, between services has been beautiful and wonderful. And Lord, like Mary now, we can sit at your feet, Lord. We live in a culture where it's all about us. It's all about what we need, instantaneous, Lord. And it doesn't work that way in your kingdom. There's no way to microwave spirituality. So, Lord, let us be um, at your feet and let us be inclined to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Aaron McTaxis uh, recently wrote an article for Breakpoint where he asked this very thought-provoking question. What do the Bible and Fifty Shades of Grey have in common? I don't think about that too much this morning. You'll get lost. Uh, the answer is both of them are on the top 10 list of books recommended to be banned in our country. Believe it or not, every year the American Library Association puts out this uh, list of books to be banned, not because they think books should be banned, but they receive scores of letters from media and from libraries and schools saying, we think these books should be banned. So the Bible came out as the number six book on the list that people in the U.S. think should be banned from our culture. Now, this is unthinkable, whether you are spiritual or secular, because for the last 250 years, the Bible has been like a guiding light to the formation of our country. Look at the Declaration of Independence. Read about the Founding Fathers. Uh, almost every president in their address has used Bible quotes. And when we elect the president, we swear them in, they put their hand on a Bible. Uh, so um, many would argue that the Bible has been the cornerstone of our cultural and of our national life. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, 1864, said in regard to what he called this great book, he said, I have to say it is the best gift God has ever given to man. So how in 150 years do we get this august president saying this is the greatest book in the world to today we should ban this book because it's the most uh, evil book in the world. The late Christopher Hitchens, who was an avowed atheist, wrote a book called God is Not Great. In his belief, and many hold this, he thought religion killed. 
religion, he thinks, is at the heart of many things that are wrong in our culture and in the world. And uh, he said that there's a lot of Bible verses that have been used through history to support oppression of women, genocide, um, slavery, etc. And therefore, uh, the Bible, we would be better off without it. Now, I'm here to say this morning that there is a kernel of truth in what the critics are saying. Uh, you, as a Christian, you'd have to put your head in the sand to not look back at history, especially church history, which is pretty solid, and not saying there have been a lot of atrocities done in the name of Christ and through Christianity. Now, my great argument would be a lot of what was done in the name of the church, those people weren't true believers, but we'll leave that for another day. But the other thing I want to tell you is that the writers of Scripture, being moved by the Holy Spirit, anticipated these things would happen. Uh, let's begin with Jesus. You know, here's Jesus on earth. He, he's involved in ministry, and he's the friend of sinners and tax collectors. And the greatest enemies of Jesus in his ministry were actually the religious people, the people that had their face in the book, right? The scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus said to them one time, you search the scriptures, the Old Testament, because in them you think you have eternal life, but they are that which testify of me. For the first time, someone opened the door that there was a correlation between what was written on a page, the Holy Word of God, and a relationship with God. That the Bible just wasn't a book of lists and rules and how to live a moral life. Jesus said, if you've read the Bible, you should have understand that I'm the living Word. Here at Calvary Chapel, we teach through the Old Testament. And if you read through the Old Testament enough, you'll find out that there's a picture that emerges of life with God. God walks with Adam in the evening breezes, the time of the evening breezes. He wrestles with Jacob. Uh, you get to the Psalms, right? The Psalms. You know, the prophets are, thus saith the Lord. The Psalms are man's words to God. God, where are you when I need you? My, my bed is filled with tears. It's man forging out his relationship in a living relationship with God. You think of the prophet Samuel as a little boy. He goes into Eli's room and he said, uh, I'm hearing something. And Eli said, you're hearing the words of God. Go back to your room and don't let any of those words fall to the ground. God told Moses, everywhere the foot of your, uh, your feet step, you are in holy ground and I am with you. And he told Joshua, just like I was with Moses, I'll be with you. And the entire Bible is that God is with us. Jesus foresaw the day where people would read the Bible as a manual, as a history book, and not a portal to a relationship with God. Think of David, who, who wrote so many of the great Psalms and poured his heart to God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 20, unless your righteousness would exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you would by no means enter the kingdom of God. Now, the problem with that is, because we're Western, we think Jesus was talking about going to heaven. That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about seeing the kingdom of God. He said, unless a man be born again, you won't even see God's action in this world. John said, this is eternal life. Uh, in John, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you might know me and the Father who sent me. Not only did Jesus anticipate this, but many of the New Testament writers Peter said this in 2 Peter, there were false prophets among you, even so there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in false heresies, even denying the Lord who brought, bought them, and they'll bring on themselves swift destruction. 2 Peter 3.16, he said, there are men who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. 
He told a young Timothy, the time will come when men will not endure sound teaching or doctrine, but they'll heap up teachers having itching ears to hear what they want to hear. And finally, 2 Timothy 3, but know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. Wake up, Calvary Chapel, we're living in this time. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, my favorite word, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, watch this. Having a form of godliness, a form of godliness, but denying its power from such turn away. Now, the reason I brought you all the way through that is because the scripture we're going to look at in Colossians this morning is one of my favorite. My life verse is Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but if you meditate in it day and night, you will have great success. The counterpart is here in Colossians chapter 3, 16. Let's look at it together. Paul says, let the word of Christ, the living God, the preeminent God who created all the world and everything in it, who's holding it together, chapter 1, by the word of his power, let it dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, whatever you do, not just when you're in church, whatever you do, in word or deed, and that's everything, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul's saying here that scripture should so saturate our being that it would make itself manifest, it would transform us, and then make its way out into every practical thing we do 24-7. In his great book, Richard Foster, Life with God, subtitle, Reading the Bible for Spiritual Transformation, says this, that the aim of Bible reading is not external conformity, whether to doctrine or deed, but the reformation of the inner self. We were born again of incorruptible seed, the word of God that lives and abides forever. We got a brand new start. And in some ways, the word of God is reparenting us, it's reforming us, it's refashioning us, it's changing the way we think and feel and act. What Foster calls our spiritual core, the place of thought and feeling and character. Behold, cries the psalmist, you desire truth in the inward parts. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart and create in me a clean heart, David said. Oh God, put a new and a right spirit within me. It's the inner person, Foster said, 2 Corinthians 4.16, that is being renewed every single day. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that what we all want? Aren't we all here today because we want to be fully devoted followers of Christ? Don't we want to be like him, smell like him, act like him, know him? I know I do. And every day we're moving more towards Christ-likeness. And the Bible is an invitation to a relationship with God where this transformation begins. And it's everything Paul's been talking about in chapter 3. He talks about the new man. He uses the illustration of putting on new garments. This new life where we're putting away anger and malice and wrath. That's the old you. And now there's new, the new you, tender mercies and love. Uh, I wasn't here last week. I was preaching somewhere else. So I didn't get a chance to touch on this. But he said we're putting away anger, malice, and listen, filthy language. It's a little pet peeve of mine. 
I got saved at 21 years old. I was a college student. I was a basketball player, so I was in a locker room every day, and I had a crowd of friends. And one day I was lost, and the next day I was found. And one of the things God took away from me instantaneously, it doesn't happen to everybody, was filthy language. One day I'm in a locker room cursing, and the next day I walk in, and, uh, you know, I haven't said a curse word since I was 21 years old. You could drop a brick on my big toe, and it just won't come out. Now, other people get delivered of other things, and that's not for everybody, but to this day, I kind of recoil, and I'm not a prude, but I recoil when people use filthy language. Um, the, the sad thing is it's starting to creep into God's people in the church, redeem people. I was out to lunch with a missionary one time who dropped the F-bomb on me. And I should have corrected him. I thought, are you being cool or relevant? Like, because you look really stupid doing it. Uh, I don't think Jesus would ever do it, right? He didn't say go into all the world and preach the gospel. He wasn't trying to be cool. But why do we go into those things when there is a new you? There's a brand new you that's moving towards Christ-likeness. Paul now will extend this to the most critical place in all our lives, the deepest part of all that we are and all that we know, and that's our relationships. In other words, if there's a new you, we're going to take a new look at relationships. There's only three things that are going to be in heaven that we're on earth. People, your memory of people, and the money that you sent ahead. Remember Jesus said, where moth and rust don't destroy? So let's look at what Paul says here, relationships. Verse 18, wives, submit to your own husbands in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents. This is pleasing in the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Uh, look at verse 22, bond servants. Today's vernacular, that's an employee. Obey in all things your masters or your bosses according to the flesh. And then chapter 4, verse 1, masters, that's employers, give your employees what's just and fair. The first four verses, wives, husbands, and fathers all deal with the home. And the reason why Paul starts here is because, let's face it, we're out in public today, right? Everybody looks good, smells good. Uh, everybody acts well. You go in the cafe today, you treat everybody nice, you open doors. Uh, the problem is the real you resides at home. The acid test is the four square walls of your house. That's the real you. And uh, so Paul begins there and uh, saying that that's the first place where a spiritual transformation needs to be evident about those who we care the most about. Most of these areas that Paul's writing about are pitfalls, right? You know, it's what we're prone to do even as spiritual people. So what I want to do is go through the list. I won't be extensive in all this, but I think there could be some learning and growing. Look, this isn't about guilt today. It's about growing. No elbowing because you're going to get an arrow or two uh, in your own direction. So it's not guilt, it's growing today. And I think if God has his way, uh, we'll all grow. So, verse 18, we begin with the wives, not because we want to pick on you, but that's listed here first. Submit to your own husband as is fitting to the Lord. Um, so there you go, we said it, the S word, right? You've heard it all your life, you're supposed to submit. Uh, that verse out of context, can you imagine how many souls have been destroyed? by that one verse out of context. 
In Ephesians 5, which is the mirror text, I talked about this extensively, where when it tells wives to submit, and by the way, it's to your own husband. Wives aren't to submit to men in general. That's something we see in Islam. That's something we see in the Middle East. That is not biblical. You're to submit to your own husband in the Lord. But in Ephesians, where wives are told to submit to your own husbands, the very first verse before it says that as the church, we are all submitting to one another in God. In other words, submission is an admirable trait. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing, and we should all do it. In fact, Jesus, our master and Lord, did it, didn't did he not? When, when he was equal with God, one in the Trinity, John 17, and he divested himself to the point where he became a man and he put on flesh, he said, I only do the things my father says. You know, that was submission to the will of God in Gethsemane. It's not my will, but yours be done. Beautiful submission. Look how that turned out. Uh, the centurion whose daughter was sick wanted Jesus to heal uh, his daughter. And Jesus said, I'm coming to your house. And the man said, no, 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 look, I'm, I'm a military leader. I'm a man of authority. I say to one, go, and he goes, and one, come, and he comes. Just say the word, and she'll be healed. And Jesus said, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all Israel. So if you go on a missions trip at Calvary Chapel, you might be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. But when you go on that missions trip, you are submitted to the leader of that trip. And so we all submit to one another. Wives, submit to your husbands. Colossians says, in the Lord. Ephesians says, as to the Lord. Now that, that, that answers a lot of questions. Pastor Bob, do I submit to my husband if he's not a Christian? Do I submit to my husband if he's not Christ-like? Well, are you in the Lord? And can you do it as unto the Lord? So here's what I would say to women. If you're a Christ follower, um, by honoring your husband and submitting to him, there's something God-glorifying in the order God has established. Let, let me explain this, and the world doesn't understand this. I did a wedding last Saturday, and every time we do a wedding, we quote Genesis 2.24, therefore a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, they become one flesh, right? That verse appears four times in the New Testament. It's Paul who said, when he quotes it, I show you a mystery, this is Christ in the church. So there's something greater going on here. The idea is Christ is the head of the church, and the imagery all through the Bible is that, that we are the bride of Christ, the church, in full submission. So in a microcosm, when that happens within a marriage, God is glorified by that. Uh, a lot of women who come to me for counseling or at the end of the service and, you know, they have a tough road to hoe with their husbands. I, I always give them this verse in Isaiah. The Lord is your husband. The Lord is your maker. And I really mean that with all my heart. Um, the Lord is your husband. Uh, no man's ever going to fill the void in you. No man's ever going to give you the self-esteem you want or the sense of worth. Every woman needs to forge a relationship with God in such a way that that's where they draw their esteem. There's no man in this room who would be jealous to be second to Jesus. The woman becomes a better person. I'll give you an example of this. I ran a men's trip to Colorado one time. I had a friend who had a house out there. We took 21 guys. And I didn't know anything about acclimation to thin air adjustment of your lungs. So we got there one day, and the very next morning, I planned for us to bike down Pikes Peak. So when we got to the van that we were driving up in, the van was filled with bikes and, you know, knit hats, gloves. I'm thinking, gosh, didn't they empty this out for the winter? What's going on here? 
It's 85 degrees. Well, we get to the height of Pikes Peak, I think it's like 15,000 feet, and we're all looking around, we're running around. 10 minutes later, everybody's running back to the van to get knit hats and gloves, it was 45 degrees. 10 minutes after that, guys are like holding on the poles with all, you know, sickness from thin air. It looked like we were a bunch of drunks up on Pikes Peak. And then I'm thinking, whoa, that was, uh, that ride up was pretty uh, hair raising. You know, we're going round and round and round. There's cars coming the other way, no guardrails, there's gravel. And I'm like, boy, I can't wait to see the bike path, which will be nice and clear that they've paved for us. And of course the guy says, okay, uh, here's your bikes, see you guys at the bottom. I'm like, where's the bike path? He goes, you just came up it. You're just going to go back down the other way. And uh, I got to tell you, man, the first half hour of that trip, I'm like, mm, one of those hand, you know, the brakes, like, you got to be kidding. And uh, it was, it was scary. We get halfway down, there's a gift shop that sells Coca-Cola and snacks. And literally, a few guys bought them t-shirts that says, no guardrails. My point here is that for all you wives out there, spiritual disciplines, prayer, devotion, Bible study, are your guardrails in your marriage. Your husband's going to let you down. Again, God didn't design it that your man would meet all your deepest needs. The Lord is your husband. He's your maker. Submission to him is a beautiful thing. Look at the Proverbs 31 woman. She works a little. She takes care of her house. She seems to be well in tune to her giftedness, and she's in submission to her husband. One of the things my wife always counsels women, give your husband, let him lead. Give him the submission he desires. You just may infuse him with what he needs and the way God wired him. In Genesis 3, after the fall, God said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You will bring forth children. Your desire, listen, in the original language, your desire will be to be over your husband, to lord over his leadership, but he shall rule over you. Now we know in Christ there's no male or no female. We get that. But this perfect situation where God is honored of male leadership and wives in submission walking side by side gives him honor and is a wonderful picture of the church. Ladies, do you think you're up for that? It's a high calling. I hope you are. And we'll see great things. Uh, on to the husbands. Verse 19. Love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Now the word love here, Paul could have grabbed for five Greek words for love. He could have grabbed for the word eros, where we get erotic, the sexual love, which is certainly part of a relationship. He could have grabbed for friendship or a bunch of other words, but he chose agape, the God type of love. And that really comes out in Ephesians where it says, we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wow, that's even a higher calling. When we look at that type of love, Christ's love, what, how should a husband love his wife? Number one, incarnationally. Jesus was willing to become a man. He was willing to die on a cross. Why? He became a man that he might dwell among us, to be with us. If you love something, you want to be with it or around it. If you love baseball, you go to baseball games. If you love golf, you go to the golf course. If you love movies, you go to the movies. Whatever you love, you're with. If you love your wife, you will be with her. One scripture says, Husbands, dwell with them. 
That doesn't mean live in the same house. It means do stuff together. That's incarnational, which actually includes, guys, listening. Uh, women have to get their 35,000 words out somehow, and you'll probably bear the brunt of it. Um, you might not enjoy it, but you'll bear the brunt of it. Love needs to be sacrificial. You know, there's some things I had to die to early in our marriage. We had three kids pretty quick, and my wife had a calling in her life. She had a band and some things. And so there were things I died to to empower her in her calling. The love of intercession, to pray for them. So, guys, here's the deal. You're either going to do it God's way and see fruit, or you're going to do it your way, and guess what happens? You're going to be bitter. It says here, you're going to be bitter. You know where bitterness comes from? And I'll jump outside of marriage. If you're bitter anywhere in any relationship, you know where it comes from? Unrealistic expectations. Like guys want supermodels that can cook. That's an unrealistic <laughs> expectation. Women want, you know, a knight in shining armor. It's an unrealistic. Listen, you married the guy or girl. You should know what they're good at and what they're not good at, and you got to work through those things. Unrealistic expectations will make you bitter. In church life, if you put unrealistic expectations on who I am, you will become bitter in church life. It happens everywhere. Uh, let me give husbands one more additional uh, piece of practical wisdom. Gary Chapman has written a book <laughs> that has profoundly changed the way I think called The Five Love Languages. We did a session on this right before dinner at a men's retreat one time, and I never heard the conversation level so high. Uh, the love languages are gift-giving, physical touch, quality time, um, somebody help me, acts of service, and words of affirmation. And uh, I had a guy bang his head on the table. I love my wife. I tell all my friends I love my wife. I just don't tell her. Words of affirmation are not my love language. So uh, pick up that book, and it may help you. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing. Ephesians says, obey your parents, uh, taking us back to the Ten Commandments. The only one of the Ten Commandments that has a promise, it will go well with you. It will go well with you. Why will it go well with you? Because the home is a training ground. And by the way, being a child is an amazing thing. The problem is you don't realize it's amazing while you're a child, right? Like, isn't it great just to leave the door open and leave the air on and eat the last piece of chicken and, and you, you know, somebody else is paying for it. Somebody, like, it's wonderful. I wish I could do it all over again. <laughs> One day your kids are going to have a teacher, a coach, a boss, a pastor, a husband, or a wife. And if you're letting them do whatever they want, like, like you know what drives me crazy? And I'm not saying this because I raised four kids. This constant asking two, five, and six-year-olds what they want. I just don't get it. They have no idea what they want. I was talking to a couple in our church from India who were in arranged marriage. They knew each other 15 minutes before they got married. And I'm like, I guess I'm the typical American. How do you do that? I mean, it seems so strange. And they said, Bob, think of it this way. You want the best for your children, so if you were going to arrange them in a marriage, you would pick the best spouse. And I thought, wow, there's more to that than I thought. That's pretty cool. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. That is your tendency. 
but rather train them up in the fear of the Lord. Let me say this to guys out there. Um, child rearing is not something you farm out to the women. Now I realize guys work and travel and all that, but as the CEO of your family, you're responsible for everyone in your family. So you might not be doing all the training, but you're responsible for the training. Um, one of the problems I have with what people call parenting today is parenting was only a word that was introduced in 1950 in our culture. And the word parenting today is code for like we're producing a product. Like, I'm going to learn how to parent. Like, uh, like, I have to produce something. You know, Deuteronomy talks about when you're traveling, when you're in the home, you should be speaking about the Word of God. It's a training center, it's a seminary, it's a hospital. You know, every day, uh, you know, people, I'm at the stage of life where after raising four kids, people are saying, Pastor Bob, tell us what you did, tell us what you did right, tell us what you did wrong. Um, and so I've had to be reflexive and reflective on how we did our child rearing. And as I look back, here's what I tell people, and I've taught about this before, I say, you know, I don't know how we did it, but I know here's what we did. Monica and I built a culture in our home. Now, you hear that out in the business world, and sometimes business gets on the things, and everybody says, well, oh, if you're talking about culture, you're bringing business into the church. No, where do you think they got it, all right? You know, you look at Apple, Starbucks, some of the main major companies are known for building a culture. Uh, somehow, we were able to build a culture. I'll give you some hot-button ideas. Uh, TV. So back in the 80s when we were raising our kids, there were families that said, no TV. It's not even going to be in the house. Some other families, it was on all the time. Uh, we never had one rule about television. And yet it was rarely on. Part of it is because we didn't watch a lot of TV. I watched sports and news. Uh, we would have a few movie nights, um, watch a show together. But it was never a point of contention in our home. Another thing that was never a point of contention was dating. You know, I had three girls, right? I should have closets of shotguns, right? We never had this magical dating age. We never debated it back and forth. It's just the culture was uh, you were pretty much going to wait for the right person. We had uh, a culture of education, a culture of reading books. Um, how about this one? I was sitting one time with an earshot of my daughter, and people were talking about, oh, yeah, we grew up, we fist fought, we called each other names and all, and finally they got around to my daughter, and they said, what did you guys do? And she sheepishly said, we never touched each other. And they're like, well, how did that happen? And she looked down, and she said, it just wasn't allowed. Again, there were no rules about it. It was just, it was culture. Um, now, one of the things that we had an advantage of is my wife and I were Christians. We got married. We could build this culture. Uh, some of you are in a mid-course correction. That's hard. Like, you just came to faith, and now you have teenagers, and teenagers are like, we're going to what church and what youth group, and why can't we do this? That's tough. But all through this, um, we are to find a way a child should go, and they will not depart from it. That is not a scripture of salvation. God has given you a child for 13 or 18 years to help them figure out the way they should go. The animal kingdom, it's days. We get 13, 18 years. We're looking for the way they're wired, not the way we want them wired. We're looking at their hearts. 
you know, kids that live on the main line have an Ivy or die mentality. They have to go to the Ivy League. You see these kids go to college, commit suicide. One of the great things I learned from Ted Tripp at a teenage parenting seminar years ago that we had, he said, do you ever have a kid forget their lunch? Here you are, you went out and bought this food, you packed the lunch, you put it on the drain board, and they forgot it, and you're steaming, and, you know. He said, you ever forget your lunch? I'm like, yeah, I pack my lunch all the time and forget it. He goes, what do you do? I just go out and buy lunch. Well, how come you have grace for yourself and not your teenager? Who needs a ton of grace because they're going through hormones and changes. And by the way, you went through those changes and you should have more grace. Like, wow, what an eye-opener. And just like the Bible, parenting is life with your children. They're not a product. They're on loan to you for a season. And so, fathers, you're either going to provoke them or you're going to set them on a the course the way they should go. Guys up for the job? It's a pretty lofty one. All right, here's one where we all live. Ready? Verse 22, bond servants, in today's vernacular, that's an employee. Obey in all things your boss according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Anybody in here who gets a paycheck from another person, um, that's the gift of God. There are people in this world that would kill, kill to go to work. That's why people came to America, the land of opportunity. Kill to get a paycheck. Uh, the Bible says here that we do it with all our heart. Not with eye service, but under God. Now, I've been on both sides of the fence. I've been an employee, now I'm an employer. Here at Calvary Chapel, we have a, a decent hiring process. We have seasoned people who do it for a living who help us. We don't do it perfectly. But you know what I've heard through the years? This is from people who've been hiring for 30, 40 years. Check references. Check references. Check references. You know why? Because everybody, it's like Facebook, everybody looks good on a resume, right? You know, I read a resume and then I chuck it in the trash. I can almost care less. The reason you're checking references is because you want to see what the person has done on their previous job. Um, we were hiring a youth pastor about 10 years ago. So we put an ad out on a youth pastor site and we had a bunch of pastors in the shoot. We were interviewing them. I had an interview that should have lasted about one minute, but I let it go on just because it, it amazed me so much. Uh, this guy came in for the position. I said, why do you want to be a youth pastor at Calvary Chapel? He said, well, you know, my wife has fibromyalgia, and I just had a baby, and I thought I would leave industry and get into an easier line of work. <laughs> I was ready to say, next. But I let this guy go on in disbelief. I'm like, are you serious? Second best thing I ever heard about hiring is make sure the people you're hiring are action-oriented, a bias for action. The man God uses or the woman God uses has a bias for work. Moses was tending sheep. Elisha was plowing 12 yoke of oxen. Peter and Andrew were fishing. Jesus was a carpenter, and Saul was working for the high priest. When I worked for the Boeing company, I, I got hired there at a time where things were really sizzling. No one could really train me. I wound up doing things no one wanted to do. I would have gone out and cut the grass if they wanted me to. I know what it's like to be in a dead-end job. I know what it's like to be in a job you don't like. 
But if you can shift your attitude that I work towards God or I work for God, everything will change. Because if you work for God and you're diligent, he'll move you along. I guarantee you, he'll move you along and get you where you need to be. And some of you got to iron some of that out and, and figure it out. Chapter 4, 1, verse 1 says, Masters, today's vernacular, employers, give your employees what is fair and just, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Uh, almost every employee, no matter where they work, if they're given a survey, do you get paid enough, always say no. Most people think they're underpaid. If you're underpaid, I have a suggestion for you. Go out and start your own business and start hiring people. Because every dollar you pay someone else is a dollar off of your plate. Employers, give them what is just and fair. Calvary Chapel, we have a church manual uh, that tells us for the size of the church we are and the education and the ministry they lead, uh, what people should make, we pay average or better. Um, because we have a master in heaven. I heard a long time ago, if you pay people peanuts, you get monkeys. And that's not what we want. <laughs> the great business owners in this church that I'm friends with treat their employees in secular employment like, they're, like a church, like their parishioners. And when you start to look at people like everybody's somebody's sister, everybody, everybody's somebody's son, everything changes. So when we hire people, we want to hire people that, that will work here and fit for Calvary Chapel, and we want the fit for them. These are all high and lofty challenges. God's laws were never imposed without the supply of his grace to fulfill them. I want to say that one more time. God's laws were never imposed without the supply of grace to fulfill them. We can be the wives we need to be, the husbands, the dads, the fathers, the employers and the employees, when we get up every morning and say, God, infuse me with your grace. Lord, help me to look at life from someone else's perspective. You have given me this high mantle of responsibility, God, and let me do it as pleasing unto you, knowing you're the one who makes my path straight, and from you I'll receive the word. We've chosen as this ending prayer a song called From the Inside Out. That's what we want the Bible to do. We want us to transform us from the inside out. The other, the other idea is religion, where you're outwardly changed, but inside nothing's happened. So Paul could have easily given us a list. Look, here's how you parent. He doesn't do that. He said, let the word of Christ richly embellish you. And then it'll have its way into practical things. So let's make this our prayer. Mm -hmm.